Welcome to the MedTech Talk podcast. This is your host, Jeff Pardo, and I'm very excited to welcome Nadim Yarid, CEO of CBRX, to this edition of the podcast. Nadim has had an illustrious career starting at GE and then as GM of Medtronic's navigation business, but his biggest and most important challenges come at CBRX, which we're going to focus on today. For full disclosure, I've had the pleasure to get to know Nadim over the past uh, eight plus years, and for the last four, I've been on Nadim's board and Gilda is an investor in CBRX. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation today, Nadim. It is great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be with you today. Terrific. Well, good. Well, we have a lot of things to cover today and really want to focus on uh, CBRX, which is turning into, I think, an incredibly exciting story. But of course, there are roots to the CBRX story. Uh, and maybe you can take us through that a little bit, the genesis of uh, both uh, CRT as a therapy in heart failure, but also uh, baroflex, uh, baroreflex activation. Uh, absolutely, Jeff. So uh, first, let's talk about heart failure. It is a devastating disease, uh, very expensive from a cost perspective, but also from the human side of things. Uh, patients, unfortunately, suffering from heart failure end up having those episodes of congestive events where they feel they're drowning. It's like a continuous waterboarding experience, just how painful that is, right? And unfortunately, one of those episodes could lead to their death. And uh, currently in the United States, heart failure is the second most expensive disease if we consider cancer as one disease. If you start separating cancer between breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, et cetera, then heart failure becomes, unfortunately, the most expensive disease in the US. And what is heart failure? It's when the heart, over the years of insult or injury to it starts becoming larger, the walls of the heart becoming thinner, and the heart's ability to pump blood to the system is compromised. And that compromise happened in multiple forms. One of them is called dyssynchrony, when the left side and the right side of the heart start becoming disconnected one from each other. So think about it like a car engine where you have the cylinders not tuned properly mm -hmm. then the car will not produce the horsepower that you need you need to tune the car that is what crt cardiac resynchronization therapy was designed to do they you know put two pacemakers right now it's only one pacemaker with two wires that's why they call it biventricular pacing they pace both ventricles and they try to resynchronize the left and the right side that works well if the heart is desynchronized. However, in heart failure, only 30 to 40% of the patients have desynchrony. The rest of the patients, the heart become larger, the walls thinner, but the left and the right sides are still beating in harmony, but not strong enough. And for those patients, unfortunately, CRT devices did not produce the results that we were hoping for, you know, 10, 15 years ago when we were testing them. Mm -hmm. And that is where our approach, the reflex activation therapy comes into play. The genesis of this therapy goes back multiple decades. I'm not going to go to the whole history with Dr. and Professor Brownwald and his wife and everything, but mm -hmm. nevertheless, in the uh, let, let me take you to one paper from Dr. Abraham from 1999, and that paper is about CRT devices. In this paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Abraham demonstrated that the sustained effect or the sustained benefit of CRT comes from the fact that when you resynchronize the left side and the right side of the heart, the pulse pressure of the, vol of the blood leaving the heart activates the better reflex in the carotid artery. Oh, interesting. Right, so those patients with dyssynchrony, you resynchronize the left and the right, now you're sending a pulse pressure strong enough, you activate the baroreflex. What a convoluted way to do it. How did the CVRX decide to do it? Well, electricity creates wonder in the body. We went, put a wire directly into those baroreceptors in the carotid arterial wall and activate those cells directly with electricity. Why go all around it, right? Now, 
our device would work in all forms of heart failure, but we have to go and develop the evidence one by one and demonstrate it. And in our first quote unquote beachhead strategy, we selected a large segment of patients who are not able to be treated by CRT devices, who are not eligible for CRT devices. Those patients are those who do not have dyssynchrony. Right, so the left and the right side of the heart are beating in synchrony, but the heart is not strong enough. The walls are thin, the muscles of the heart are tired, and they cannot pump the blood. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, so on one hand, we are the first, actually, the first device using the brain to address a cardiovascular condition. What an interesting concept, right? So we go to the brain and we fix the heart. We did not you know, invent that pathway. Actually, Professor Brownwell, but even the founder of Medtronic, Earl Backen, has always had this belief that the heart and the brain are strongly connected. And actually, the Cleveland Clinic created an institute called the Brain, the Backen Heart Brain Institute, BHBI, just to work on that interface between the brain and the heart. But for all sense of purposes, CVRX with our Barristim Neo, we have right now the first and the only FDA-approved product that uses the brain to address a cardiovascular condition, in this case, heart failure. So we're very excited about that. Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting. And I love the analogy you give um, of a thermostat in a house. I think that's really uh, illustrative of kind of the effect here on the nervous system. Could you, could you describe that? Absolutely. And uh, the beauty of our approach, uh, so before I address your uh, your question, let me open up a small parenthesis, Jeff, and I'm known for being talkative a lot, so <laughs> slow me down <laughs> if I go too far. So our approach with the reflex activation is designed also to work for the treatment of high blood pressure or resistant hypertension. And it's easier to explain the rheostat example with hypertension. So think about your office, right? You have that thermostat on the wall, sensing the temperature. And if the temperature is too high, it says, well, I need to inform, you know, my internal computer that I need to get cooler air in here right now. So the thermostat sends order to the HVAC, actually information, the HVAC computerized system starts the compressor, cool down the air, start sending more air, open up the, the vents, and, and on and on and on. So it's a cascade of events, all starting from that thermostat. Now, if we cannot modify the thermostat and it's set at 76 degrees and we're sweating, yeah, I can put a chair and try to open up the vents. It is not going to help because as soon as we hit 76 degrees, the thermostat will stop the flow of air. How do we change this? Well, one trick would be to change the dial on the thermostat, but what if the dial is broken? Well, another trick is to take a match and light it and heat the surrounding right around that thermostat. So the local heat from the match that you're holding in your fingers would trick the thermostat into believing the temperature is 80 degrees. So the thermostat trying to cool it down to 76, well, in fact, it was 76, it will cool down to 72. So you see that trick? I'm hitting the thermostat to cool down the room. That's exactly what we're doing with the battery receptors. We activate them electrically. We trick the brain into believing there is so much pressure, so much pulsations there that we need to slow the things down even further. And then the brain reacts to that source of information that we're sending and slows down the heart, dilates the artery, relaxes the kidney. And all of this happened through two sets of nervous systems. Uh, it's called actually the autonomic nervous system. It has two sets of wires. Think, think about them like the gas pedal and the brake pedal. The gas pedal is the sympathetic tone. When we send signal from the brain to the organ through the sympathetic tone, it is meant to rev the system. This is the fight or flight mechanism. On the other hand, the parasympathetic tone is the brake. When the brain sends signal over the parasympathetic tone or the vagal tone, it's meant to slow things down. That's the rest and digest. Uh, just an anecdote in here, in textbooks, they talk about the four basic primitive instincts of mammals, you know, animals mm -hmm. like the human, and they call them the four Fs. So fleeing, fighting are the sympathetic one. Mm -hmm. 
and then feeding and the reproductive system, that's the, the fourth F, are about the parasympathetic. And those two are balanced usually in our body. For normal human beings, when they're sane, when they're, you know, everything's going well in their system, they have a good balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic system. We're going up a flight of stairs, the sympathetic system kicks in. We're sitting down after eating, we're feeling sleepy, you know, we need some rest. The parasympathetic system is up. And we keep balancing those up and down. Now, unfortunately, those patients suffering from heart failure or those suffering from resistant hypertension, they have an imbalance. Their sympathetic tone is too high, their parasympathetic is too low. So their body is revved all of the time. It's like you're standing up, sitting in your car, your foot on the gas pedal all of the time, even when there is a red light, right? You're standing in your yeah. car and you're revving the engine, you'll kill the engine. You can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You have to have some times of rest. And that's the same for the heart. Over years and years of being over revved and beating very fast, very vigorously all the time, the hearts are becoming larger and the walls thinner and it loses its ability to pump properly the blood. And that's heart failure. It's complicated. Yeah, no, it's so interesting. And uh, yeah, and the, you know, now the proof is kind of in the pudding. Uh, last summer, CVRX uh, achieved a major milestone in its history with FDA approval. Um, uh, for symptomatic improvement of heart failure. And could you describe some of the results from that study and, and maybe also put those results into context as we think about other therapies in heart failure? So uh, when we started the venture in, in heart failure, we decided to do three sequence of trial, a phase one first in man study, a second trial called feasibility study that was meant to collect the evidence and to size the effects. And then the third, the pivotal trial to seek and get an FDA approval. So the third trial called BTHF is the one that was recently published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, Jack. BTHF is a randomized controlled trial. And we, in this trial, were out to demonstrate what we always said it will happen, which is when you put this device in patients suffering from heart failure, they will feel better. Their functional status will improve. So they'll go from maybe a class three heart failure to a class two, so less severe form of the disease. They can exercise more, they can walk longer, and they can live a fuller life. So those are the symptoms that we believed before starting the trial that our device will impact. And by the end of this uh, trial, we published the results and you can read them in Jack. We've demonstrated that our device improves uh, the exercise capacity of patients by improving their six minute hall walk by 60 meters. And let me put those results you know, in perspective and give you some numbers. Usually the heart failure and the, you know, the medical community at large believes that an improvement in 25 meter in the six minute whole walk test in heart failure is clinically meaningful. Our device improves 60 meters, so that's two and a half times more. Mm -hmm. And there is a measure called the quality of life using the Minnesota Living with Heart Failure questionnaire. It's a standardized test. It's one of the two tests that FDA recommends to demonstrate whether the patients are living a better life. It covers a lot of information about the patients from how well they're sleeping to eating to, you know, functioning in their normal life, can they dress, et cetera. And in this standardized test, an improvement of five points is deemed to be clinically meaningful in heart failure. Our device showed an improvement of 14 points, so almost three times that amount. And finally, in the functional status, about two thirds of our patients improved by one class. And when you compare it with the control arm, about 34% of the patients improved in the treatment arm versus the control arm. And we talked about CRT earlier, cardiac resynchronization therapy. And just for the record, CRT devices and CRTDs are one of the largest product segments in the medtech space those devices uh, generate a billion of dollars, billions of dollars of revenues to mostly three large companies, Medtronic, Abbott, and Boston Scientific. Yet they, addressed, they address only 30 to 
of patients suffering from heart failure, the, those patients with dyssynchrony. The remaining 60%, and we, we, we talk often about the 59%, we, you know, you see our, our marketing material, we have a solution for the 59%. Those 59% of the patients who cannot benefit from CRT devices is, you know, the segment that is a sweet spot for our therapy, barostimnia. Those 59% of the patients are different than the 41% that could be treated with CRT, right? However, they have the same symptoms. It's the same disease. The only difference is whether there is dyssynchrony or not, but all of the description of the morbid and you know, life annoying events that I've, I've been mentioning about, you know, not ability to walk or uh, inability to sleep and so forth, they suffer the same way. So why am I saying all of this? Well, when we look at our results, it is very important to see how do they compare with competition. Well, in this 59%, there is no device-based competition for what we're doing for Barostimnio. Mm -hmm. So the closest proxy we have are the CRT devices in the adjacent markets, those patients suffering from heart failure with dyssynchrony. So if we compare our results to the results that made CRT devices successful, we are or the results that we've shown with BTHF are better on every single parameter and sometimes by a factor of two than the results that, you know, propelled CRT devices to becoming the standard of care. Yeah. So that is why I'm excited about it, Jeff, is there is, you know, with lesser results, CRT became so successful, there is no reason why our therapy would not be hugely successful in the future. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, amazing. And I think the other interesting thing is um, FDA didn't only want to see what they might consider to be subjective um, criteria. They also had an objective criteria criteria in there, an NT pro BMP. Could you talk a little bit about that and the improvement you saw in the study on that biomarker? Uh, yeah, so for 10 or 15 years, FDA did not want or did not accept to approve devices based just on symptomatic improvement alone. They needed to see some objective criteria to confirm the data. The idea is that subjective events like, you know, ability to walk longer or a better quality of life sometimes could be fooled by placebo effects or other elements, right? And FDA mandated that companies like CVRX conducting trials have to provide also objective criteria. With FDA, we decided to select a blood biomarker called NT-ProBNP. Uh, this blood biomarker has become almost the norm right now within the heart failure community to assess the severity of the heart failure disease in patients. It's a simple blood draw. It is taken in a blinded way. It's sent to one core lab centrally, and the assessment by the core lab is done using assays, standardized, so there is absolutely no subjectivity in this result whatsoever. It's all objective. And in our case, we demonstrated with a very strong statistical significance that our device reduced the anti-proBNP marker by 25%. To put things in perspective, recently in the Intresto trial that Novartis conducted, they demonstrated that even a minor reduction of 10% in the NT-ProBNP biomarker correlates well with future outcome in terms of reduction of mortality or morbidity in those patients. So 10% of a reduction in NT-ProBNP in average already correlates well with outcome improvement in the future we achieved 25%. So we are very excited about this. And I think that is the parameter that allowed FDA in confidence to approve our device. Without the NT-ProBNP, I think FDA would have hard time approving a heart failure device based on symptomatic improvement alone. Yeah, and in this case, uh, they even did it without a panel, which I thought was uh, qu quite a, quite extraordinary and quite a statement on the on the power of the of the data. Um, but of course, you know, we 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 do this for you know the patient impact, and one of the things I love to see on the CBRX side and the social media is the stories that have been put together of the patients that have been impacted. This uh, your VP of Sales and Marketing, Craig Palmer, has done a 
terrific job. So uh, curious, you know, uh, obviously it's got to be pretty emotional to see, you know, a device that you all have worked so hard on really changing the lives of patients. Could you talk about that? And in particular, any stories that stick out to you? Uh, we have a patient who volunteered to be one of the very first patients to receive our device in the United States. And I'm talking here, when was this? 2005. His name is David. He was 34 years old at the time. He said, you know what? I, you know, I, I'm done with this life. I need a solution. And when he researched and he found that we are starting a clinical trial for a first in man experience in the United States in 2005, he called a participating center. He drove 200 miles, consented, signed up, did all of the tests, qualified, received the device. And since then, David has been all over the world talking about how this device has changed his life. So uh, a couple of years later, I think in 2008 or nine, we invited him and his wife to come and speak with us and our employees in Minneapolis. And he is, he is very charismatic. So he's a young chap, you know, at the time was 37, 38 year old. But man, when his wife spoke, how we brought her husband to life and we brought her back her husband, you could see the tears in all of our eyes. And it's, you know, that's what keeps us going. And when we had tough times in CVRX, we have ups and we had downs, and we can talk about this later. But in the days when we were down, those stories like this, we had pictures of David and his wife in the office, for example. And that is what will keep us going. That kept us going saying, you know what? No, they deserve to fight to keep that therapy because David needs it to keep going. A yeah. uh, few years later, in 2013, when we started the first heart failure trial in the United States, Hope for HF, uh, another David from Arizona volunteered to be in the trial. David uh, was and is uh, suffering from heart failure. At the time, he could not even walk to his mailbox. He had, you know, his daughter was planning to get married the summer after. And he was worried that he cannot even walk her down the aisle. So he consented, got the device. Now you, you could see him on one of the videos that Craig uh, just released on YouTube recently. Uh, eight years later, uh, David's living a full life. He goes golfing. He went to Ireland, you know, went to the bars there, have fun. Uh, definitely when we went and, uh, and saw him in his uh, house a few years later, he showed us the photo album with his... Uh, uh, the wedding of his daughter and how he walked her down the aisle. Uh, it's, you know, you, you cannot not be emotional when you talk about those stories. Yeah. And the final story I have is about uh, Kiwi, and you'll see a video of him, a basketball champion. He spent his young life, you know, coaching other kids. Uh, and unfortunately, he had heart failure at a very young age. Uh, so he's now say upper 30s, low 40s, so still very young. And he could not function anymore because of his heart failure. So he was in our trial and we did a kickoff meeting for our team in January, right before the COVID crisis. And uh, Kivi and his mom showed up and they spoke to our new employees and that was very emotional as well. Uh, so stories like this, uh, so unbelievable. You know, and they will tell you there is a before and there is the after. When you turn on that device, you're giving me my life back. And that tells the entire story right there. Uh, and I cannot make it justice. So for your audience, they should uh, Google Barstem on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, whatever. You'll see these videos. Amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's uh, really inspiring. And, uh, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned sort of the bef before and after. And I remember when we were doing due diligence on... Um, CBRX and and actually we, I don't think it's as uh, applicable in heart failure what I'm about to say but in hypertension you you turn on the device and there's an immediate lowering of of blood pressure the the, the effect is instantaneous which is pretty pretty remarkable there's really not too many procedures which you can turn on and off and see that sort of impact on the body yeah, we do see routinely 30 or 40 millimeter change sometimes in the same setting, just when we turn the device on in hypertension patients. Yeah. There was an episode on a, 
on, on TV a few years ago, I think 2006, in hypertension, patients from Rochester, Dr. Bezignano's patients. And the TV crew was there when we were doing the dose response test that was in the protocol of the trial. So we turn off the device and we start ramping up the therapy to map here at what dose of therapy we are getting, what response. So here is this patient's connected to a blood pressure measurement and the TV crew filming the screen and blood pressure starts around 188, 190 millimeter. And then we start ramping up the therapy and it drops to 128. That TV reporter was going crazy. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, we'd ask the patient, stand up. Are you feeling lightheaded? Like, like, no, the only thing that you would visually see, Jeff, is the color of their cheek going from red to pink. And that's it. And everything else is on the measure, you know, on the monitor. Sometimes the patients will tell you, well, that thumping in the back of my head stopped. But otherwise, you, you don't notice anything except we're sitting in a corner changing the programming wirelessly with the device. Yeah, it really is the, the beauty of the, you know, using the brain uh, and the centrally mediated uh, therapy is the brain can correct for a lot of things, right? Uh, so it's really, uh, it's really extraordinary. You know, in, when we were doing the hypertension trial, uh, after a while in the trial, we had to mandate a maximum number of visitors in the operating theater during the procedure. Surgeons were so excited when they put the device the first time in the OR and they turn it on and they see 50 or 60 millimeter drop right there. They started inviting you know, their other colleagues, doctors to walk in when they do this experiment to show them. And we had to mandate, says, no, 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 no more than one visitor. <laughs> risk of infection, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, interesting. And well, actually, it's a good segue into, you know, heart failure. We've gotten the first approval. Um, uh, maybe talk about the second approval that we're working through right now. And then, uh, and then also some of the other applications of, um, of baroreflex activation. Yes, absolutely. So, so um, the first approval we mentioned about it, and the second we're going after right now, we just completed the enrollment of the extended phase of the trial of BHF, and we now are in the phase of collecting data. Uh, the idea here, the hypothesis, is that our device would possibly keep patients out of the hospital and alive, and we want to demonstrate this in a statistically significant way so that FDA will allow us to make that claim. Right, uh, and we're excited about the second phase. It's still an unknown phase right now. We're blinded and we're collecting the data, uh, but we're in the last straight line right now of this phase of the trial. After this, uh, we have three options to go after. One is obviously, I mentioned it earlier, hypertension, uh, particularly resistant hypertensive patients. The second is something that we mentioned in our past, and people might remember it. It's the different form of heart failure called hope. Uh, I'm sorry, it's called diastolic heart failure or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, HEFPEF. Those patients usually have a similar size heart as normal patients, but the walls of the heart become thicker. So the cavities inside the heart are smaller and they cannot fill blood properly. So while the heart is able to eject the blood, the heart is not able to fill blood enough to eject enough blood out. So it's a different form of heart failure. Those patients suffer from similar symptoms to heart failure, to the usually known heart failure, you know, the one with the larger heart. Uh, so that's the second indication. And finally, uh, we, we collected data over the years about the uh, kidney protective function of the device. There is a hypothesis that uh, the better reflex activation would protect the kidney. Uh, I'm not going to go into details about how that works. Uh, we have data suggesting that, and we would like to demonstrate it as well. So that's another field. I think this one will come after hypertension and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Mm -hmm. And finally, we made an interesting observation in BHF. Uh, it's an observation right now. We noticed that the device is also reducing other cardiovascular events, particularly arrhythmia. And it's a you know, significant reduction. Um, now, this was not a powered endpoint in BHF. And you know, BHF was meant to demonstrate heart failure, right? And this data would be considered hypothesis 
for a next trial you know, in arrhythmia, if we want to go that road. So there are multiple ways we can go next with this therapy. We're excited about it. It's uh, right now the focus is on getting the hope for HF, uh, the BTHF trial out, educate patients and physicians about it and continue the collection of the mortality morbidity data. Yeah, well, it's truly a platform um, a technology, but yeah, like every every uh, technology, it has to start with um, you, you know with the initial uh, beachhead, and luckily, um, uh, luckily for CBRX, it's a very um, you know large group of patients that can start to benefit from this immediately. Um, but from from the standpoint of getting a new technology approved, CBRX has really been on the forefront. I feel like with um, uh, with really the evolving uh, state of affairs at FDA and really how they work with companies to safely bring new technologies to, to market. And it's not really not too long ago, you know, to probably 10 or so years ago when, uh, when things were quite difficult between industry and FDA and there was not as good a collaboration. Um, so can you just give a backdrop on, on maybe how far we've come with FDA and, uh, you know, you, you and your team, and you've got, you know, really tremendous people on your team who've played an instrumental role with FDA, uh, but maybe talk about um, some of the things that CBRX has really helped to lead, uh, you know, along with other companies, but really helped to lead, and, um, and some of these initiatives that I think really helped to bring new technologies safely to market. Uh, Jeff, a few years ago, uh, it was possibly you know 2009 uh, when the uh, director of the center for uh, device and radiological health at fda cdrh dr jeff shuren was you know concerned about all of those capitol hill uh, uh, hearings that he was invited to and all of the politicians basically beating on his head about the approval process in FDA and how it was uneven with you know different pockets, different situations, and so forth. And he realized quickly that uh, he needs to fix the software and the hardware at FDA. And by software, I mean the culture of the place. And it's a big ship, FDA, and it's a government agency. Think how hard it is to walk in and decide, all right, I need to change the culture of a government agency. And that's what we have been seeing over the past decade, slowly, gradually. So it's like the frog in the boiling water, right? We don't notice it, but take a step back and look where we've come from, from 2008 to today in our interactions with FDA. And what he is able to accomplish is number one, the processes are more predictable and more transparent right now. Number two, products are being approved pretty rapidly compared to the past. Think about our device. From the day we finished the trial to the day we got approved with a PMA, first of a kind device, three and a half months, not two years or three years, three and a half months. Uh, so, and the initial intent, and he was able to accomplish it, was not to reduce the bar, not to lower the bar. We want to keep that bar as high as possible in terms of safety and efficacy required to approving products in the United States. And that portion of the culture, you would notice it. Just look at an email that an FDA reviewer sends to one of your companies. They often are asking, how else can I help? You know, wanting to listen probing questions and talking about the voice of patients, voice of the customers and so forth. Those are languages that we are used to hearing from industry. Now we're hearing from FDA reviewers. Yeah. Another thing is it used to be the following paradigm that a company designs the trial. FDA would say, yep, this trial works. Nope, this trial doesn't work. Then the company goes, run the trial, come back with the results, and they have to meet the results they said they will meet. Well, that was broken in 2008 because FDA would influence the trial design so much that the, the trial is wanting to be run by the company is not anymore the trial that was run. 
And yet, even despite this, then the results and all of the confusion about it, and you end up in the end fighting in front of a panel of experts about whether this endpoint is relevant or not after I spent five years putting a lot of patients at risk and spending tens of millions of dollars. That's not the time to discuss if the endpoints that were selected five years ago are relevant or not, right? Mm -hmm. All of this has changed right now. All of that clarity has, has uh, you know, existed in, in, from the beginning of the trial. Before you even engage in a trial, you know what FDA really thinks about those endpoints. But the other beauty of it is the FDA team now knows that they are empowered internally, not only to say yes or no, but also to provide ideas. Now, we've got a, sometimes very skilled researchers at FDA, and they've seen so much. Now, clearly, they cannot disclose to you information that is confidential, that's coming from another company. But part of their readings, you know, panels, they, this is what they do all day long. Sometimes they do have ideas to simplify the problem that you're working on. 10 years ago, they would not feel empowered that they could tip you on those ideas or those directions. Yeah. That has changed right now. It used to be in 2008, the first advice you receive as a young CEO is never ask the FDA any question because you will get an answer you don't like. And today I will tell new CEOs, ask the FDA. The worst that will happen is you will get an answer that you don't like. The best is they will tell you something that you did not realize that you could do. Ask the FDA often. Ask them every single question you have. And that is different. Now, I don't know what FDA will be in 10 years, but today, where we are, ask the FDA. The worst is you will get an answer that will be the worst answer that you're you know, fearful of, right? But that's the worst that could happen. But if you, even if you do not ask, it's, it's, you're not going to worsen your case. But there is a chance, and not insignificant, that the FDA will come back with an answer that says, wow, I can do that? Yeah, yeah, that's a great advice and um, and really such a different paradigm for, for FDA, which is, uh, um, you know, I think very helpful. And in, in particular, you know, the breakthrough designation pathway, which CBRX followed, uh, to me, one of the nice things about that is how much interaction and collaboration was kind of built into that pathway. So maybe talk about that as a pathway for companies and, you know, not every company is eligible for it, but um, but uh, give some advice on sort of the maybe pros and cons or, you know, maybe there's no cons to it, but talk a little bit about the, the pathway and uh, advice you have to, to entrepreneurs out there that are considering it. Uh, the breakthrough uh, pathway uh, is meant for devices that have no substitutes. And uh, for those devices that are addressing, uh, I would say, a critical disease, right? Uh, so it's unlikely that an aesthetic surgery device could get a breakthrough, I would say unlikely. Uh, and it's more likely that the device treating heart failure will get a breakthrough, right? That's in the, in the likelihood of getting it. The pathway was part of the 21st Century Cures, the Cures Act. Uh, but even before that, FDA started with a guidance called the Expedited Access Pathway, and they published it, I think, in April of 2015. Uh, that was morphed into the breakthrough devices. Uh, the idea here is that FDA would allocate the resources to this program to ensure that they are doing their best efforts to accelerate access to this therapy to the U.S. patients who need it, right? And because of that paradigm, the reviewers who are part of this program on the FDA sites feel very empowered of sometimes going a little bit creative and finding different solutions to specific problems and accepting sometimes a higher level of uncertainty as long as the company has a plan to develop all of the answers surrounding this uncertainty. So, from my perspective, there is no downside from selecting this pathway if your device is a candidate. Mm -hmm. So you have to go through the process of 
building the case and submitting it. This takes time. It would take probably about a month to collect all of the data, the evidence, the, you know, the research, have some you know, experts weighing in on it and so forth. FDA will take a month to review it. And then you'll know if you're designated or not. After this, once you are designated, now you go through the normal process of you know, the trial designs and everything, but now you are doing it under the breakthrough umbrella. So you have more resources, more ability to escalate within FDA and FDA now knows that they should be willing to take a little bit more risk in terms of the uncertainty on the outcome of the trial before you start running it yeah. because it's a breakthrough device. Um, some people might say it would slow you down because those two or three months at the beginning uh, are wasted. Uh, my answer is different. Uh, usually, and you see it also in research and development uh, product uh, developments, uh, uh, Jeff, and you've seen it probably many, many times. Programs start slipping at the beginning. But also, if at the beginning, the team takes the time to put the right foundation, then the program will go much, much faster after. So those two, three months of investment at the beginning of the program are the foundation that will allow you then to move much faster down the path. When we went through this road, we spent, we submitted the request to be in, in the expedited access in May 2015. We started the trial in April of 16. It was worth the investment that nine, uh, nine to 11 months. Uh, now we got a conditional approval a few months earlier in this that allowed us to go and start working with IRBs and so forth. But that investment was definitely worth it. We were the first going through this process with FDA. Yeah. And they were learning, we were learning. And it was not easy because we submitted the request to FDA before FDA had the time to train their own teams about it or develop all of the guidance internally, how to deal with this program. So we were working with FDA to figure out how to do these things. And there were some areas where we had a lot of frictions uh, and a uh, lot of emotions as well on both sides, uh, particularly on my side, the emotions. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, but uh, you know, uh, there was one event that was on my birthday in August uh, that year. And my birthday, I was at FDA, right, a meeting, and I did not get the answer I really wanted to get. And I was fuming that weekend. It was Friday. It was like the worst weekend I had in years. And, and, and then by Tuesday, we had a call with the leadership at FDA, and we decided to have biweekly calls between the FDA team and our team and a team of experts on an ongoing basis. So it was every Thursday at 10.30 a.m., every other Thursday, 10.30 a.m., their teams, our teams, and the experts on the phone, we like 25 people, and giving, you know, distributing the actions and do doing research. It was not easy, but I think we paved the way for many other companies right now to follow this pathway. One company I know that has been following it now is Livanova. Their trial design very much resembles ours, and no regrets in here, you know, when we innovate and we create a pathway, we, we're not patenting it, right? So we're creating yeah. something that everybody else can follow. And in a, in a convoluted way, I'm not unhappy that other people are following it. It, it means that all of this effort that we spent as a team at CVRX and with FDA and spent by FDA is worthwhile. It's not just for one product. Absolutely. And, you know, that level of trust and collaboration, I mean, it really, you know, it's going to benefit patients and that's what it's all about. Another interesting thing I think about the breakthrough pathway, and it really leads to the next topic I want to talk to you is, is the linkage with reimbursement, because as we all know, it's, it's, it's been a long time uh, since just regulatory approval was enough for, a, you know, a venture bank company to, uh, uh, you know, to certainly get an exit, but um, but now you know you really have to get out there in many cases and develop the market, and that can be challenging as a new innovative therapy. So, talk a little bit about the the linkage uh, through the back breakway breakthrough pathway to reimbursement, and um, and then we can get into a little bit uh, of reimbursement specifically. Uh, so when 
we talk about reimbursements, the, and, and I'm saying this in a positive way, the big elephant in the room is CMS, the Center of Medicare Services, right? Uh, C, CMS kind of defines the direction the wind will be blowing, right? And many of the private payers will end up following CMS. Now, some therapies are meant for younger patient population where CMS absolutely has no say. The, what I'm going to say is not applicable, but for a therapy like ours, heart failure, where two thirds of the patients are above the age of 65, CMS is the 800 pound gorilla. And under the leadership of Secretary Azar and Commissioner Sima Verma, CMS decided to leverage the excellent work that FDA has been doing on the breakthrough therapy. And usually you've seen this often among FDA, I'm sorry, among government agencies, sometimes there is a trust but verify uh, mentality. In this situation, CMS decided to trust the FDA in their assessment that this therapy deserves the status of breakthrough and not <laughs> questioning it. All right. So FDA works under the premise whether this therapy is safe and effective. For CMS, it's about whether it's reasonable and necessary. Those are very different dimensions. Mm -hmm. And yet CMS decided, you know what? FDA did all of this work upfront and de designated the Spadagus breakthrough. We'll take that, their words at face value. That is huge. I, I don't remember other times where we've seen this, right? And last year in April, uh, so April of 2019, uh, Commissioner Sima Verma issued a press release uh, that mentioned the NTAP and TPT changes in their requirements for devices that have breakthrough status. So the NTAP is the new technology add-on payments. The TPT is the equivalent transition path-through for outpatients procedures. And the idea here is that usually for those uh, two add-on payments, the requirement is that the therapy has to be novel the therapy has to have a certain cost criteria that requires changing the payment. And the third, which was the hardest one to get, is the therapy has to prove that it's providing a significant clinical benefit to an unmet need. That third one is where most product failed the test for NTAP and TPT. For breakthrough devices starting this year, that third one is waived. So they automatically get it. So if FDA mm -hmm. decides product X is breakthrough and I approved it, FDA approved it, then CMS will say, all right, that significant, significant clinical improvement, check. We don't even have to test it, it's done. And that is a huge step forward. There is even talk about more actions that CMS will be doing soon. Some of it related to the executive orders that was issued last year, uh, or is it earlier this year? I'm, I'm losing track here with COVID. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we will probably see in the near future more announcements from CMS in regard to breakthrough as well, uh, in regard to coverage. Those alone are worth the upfront investment for a company to go through the breakthrough pathway. I couldn't agree more. And it's, you know, we, we, you know, getting on the same side of the, uh, you know, the, of the table with uh, CMS and the payers is, I think, one of the biggest challenges uh, for our industry. And, uh, and because, the, you know, there's a history, I think, of distrust. Uh, and maybe it's not, um, you know, always stated, but I think there's sort of an undercurrent of distrust. Uh, about really the value of innovation. And I think the more that we can, you know, be in the same room and talking to these people and um, helping educate them and also, you know, sh delivering the science and the evidence that shows that we not only improve outcomes, but we, you know, these technologies can reduce cost as well. Uh, you know, that sort of uh, interaction, I think, is the only way to really um, begin to do that. And I know you've got a lot of ideas on, uh, you know, perhaps other ways we can improve reimbursement and talk a little bit about, uh, maybe we start with coding because there's a there's sort of a dilemma that all young companies are faced with in trying to establish reimbursement. 
Um, and that's this dilemma of kind of one, if you're deemed a category three code, you're investigational. And that's like a almost a code word for getting denied by, uh, by payers. Uh, but then there's also this dilemma of having to get widespread utilization in order to, um, you know, to, to, to get a code. And that can be, you know, that can be tough when you don't have, uh, when nobody can get paid for it. So maybe t talk to us a little bit about some of these challenges that are built into the system and, and maybe ideas or ways that we can start to alleviate that. The, uh, the coding dilemma is an interesting one. Um, so let me explain how this works. Um, and, I, and I need to simplify a little bit. So CMS defines codes for every procedure, but they don't allocate the codes. They say they have a procedure has to have a code, but they don't say what that code is. They delegated that function to the American Medical Association, AMA. And AMA has created a group within them to manage this. And over the years, uh, it started to become a significant source of influence and revenue uh, for AMA, that function. There was one issue that they were trying to solve. AMA was trying to solve under, I think Michael Beebe was running this effort within AMA years ago. And that is about novel or innovative therapies when they do not have a code. So they said, if we go ahead and create the same level of codes for everything, existing therapy, novel therapies, some of those novel therapies could be a fad that will go away in the future. Mm -hmm. So we'll create a code and that code will have to stay forever, even though the therapy might not exist in two years because nobody wants it. So they created this classification of category one and category three, where the category three is for those novel procedures where we do not know if they're here to stay or justified. The problem is that the unforeseen problem to that, they, you know, AMA did not think that would become a problem, but now it's an acute problem. The criteria to move a code from three to one is to demonstrate that, you know, you have to have more than one product, you have to have more than one doctor using it, and they have one criteria called the widespread utilization. And at one moment, they thought at least 10% of the patients who could be treated with this device should be treated with this device before we know it's here to stay. So for a device like the Barristim Neo, it will be, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of patients. Well, when they did this, it was meant for a good reason. They really wanted to know if this therapy is here to stay or it will go away. But then the unforeseen consequence of this is on the private payer side. Private payers took that opportunity of this classification to start denying all of the procedures that are coded under code three, mm -hmm. saying this is not a proven technology. It's category three, it's innovative, it's experimental. You hear all of these words. So now we end up in a situation where two consequences of this are hurting AMA. Number one, they need to get to the widespread utilization, but they can't because those products are not being reimbursed. They will never get to 10% of the patients who need them if they're not getting paid for. That's the first issue. So a therapy that could be saving lives could die because they could not get over that payment discrepancy. Mm -hmm. The second issue is more acute to AMA, physician payments. Many payers refuse to pay the doctor fees if a procedure is code under category three. So now, how can we get a widespread utilization if we tell the doctor you have to do this procedure for free? Will you get 10% of the patients treated by a physician saying, you know what, I'm going to volunteer and do all of this for free and not getting paid? So it feels like what EMA tried to do 10 or 15 years ago with this categorization of the codes came back and backfired on the device industry, on the physicians, but most importantly on the patients. So now it's the challenge is up to AMA to fix this situation with the coding. And there are different ways that could be fixed. AMA is aware of it, 
uh, we just would love to work with them on finding a good fix for it once and for, for all. And the fix could be either prohibiting payers companies from segregating like this, but that's difficult to do, or finding a different mechanism rather than code one, code three, yeah. to retire those codes that don't exist anymore. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, of course, reimbursement is incredibly complex and you always do a great job of distilling it uh, down in a way that uh, at least people like me can understand it. You know, the second part of reimbursement, of course, is coverage. Um, and, and that also has been riddled with uh, issues. But you, you and I have talked a little bit about this idea of shifting our thinking to maybe uh, incremental coverage. So maybe talk about that and and the maybe the potential uh for that to be a way for companies to establish a, a beachhead uh, i'm a big proponent of incrementalism rather than binary outcomes uh and i've you know <laughs> whether it's with fda i've always said this fda approval thing could be replaced in the future by more of a gradual approach rather than a binary you know pre-approval post-approval but with CMS, it's uh, it's easier to do. Uh, the coverage could be determined um, in an incremental fashion rather than all or nothing like it is today. So because it's an all or nothing, today payers and CMS takes extreme uh, care before they approve the coverage of a device because they don't want to open up those wind vanes and you know everybody's using this device before they're comfortable that is reasonable and necessary, but they will not get comfortable if it's that is reasonable and necessary until they see enough volume. So you see the issue is where, the chicken and the egg and, and an incremental way of doing things would have been, for example, starting by covering the device in some segment of patient population or some segments of hospital settings or physician specialties and so forth. So you start collecting the evidence as you grow the penetration of a device uh, rather than be an all or nothing like it is today. Uh, one thing, Jeff, I want to say, and people don't realize this, very few devices received a coverage determination from CMS because they don't need to. Mm -hmm. Okay, so CRT devices, we were talking about it, standard of care and heart failure. There is no national coverage determination for CRT devices, they just get paid. So the beauty about CMS is by default, a product will be covered. But where the rubber meets the road is what happens at the local MAC level in a case by case and you know medical directors saying, well, I don't have enough evidence and so forth where it's forcing companies to go and seek a national coverage determination. The CMS team that does NCDs is very small. They cannot do this for every single product that hit the market. So we have to, we have, they have to select which ones are worthwhile doing an NCD. And before you go down this road, clearly you don't want to get a negative coverage decision. That's mm -hmm. much worse than anything, right? Mm -hmm. uh, than the claim by claim. So. My advice to many companies is before you start talking about a national coverage determination or even a local coverage determination, think, test, try it out, see where the bottlenecks is, try to fix that, try to see if you can solve them locally rather than go through the main road with NCDs. Except if you break through, in which case I'm hopeful that maybe there will be an announcement soon that will uh, simplify this pathway. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be um, <clears throat> really a, a, a huge improvement, I think, in um, again, in, in our ability to improve access of these technologies for, for doctors and patients. Um, there, there's uh, so much we, we can cover in these, but one thing I want to make sure we hit on today is really around leadership and building a leadership team. And, and you know, I think from the day, you know, we met, I've been so impressed with the team you've built and they, they've stayed uh, intact at CBRX by and large <clears throat> through many ups and downs and and uh, and for many years and so maybe talk a little bit about your team uh, and and you know also about building an A plus team and and maybe pulling people from big companies uh, to, into small companies and what's that, what that's like. Uh, it's a big topic, Jeff. Uh, yeah. You know. Uh, 
I, I, we have a phenomenal team at CVRX. I every time I look around and I see who I'm working with, and I feel so blessed. And I cannot imagine how lucky I am to be a member of this team. Um, and it's not just the one layer, you know, vice presidents and officers, but one or two layers below them as well. Uh, let me. Um, so you mentioned Craig Palmer earlier, our VP of Sales and Marketing, and the impact he's having right now is uh, doing, but. Okay, I can take so many other examples. Uh, you know, the innovative clinical trial design in two phases in one that Liz Galley and Dean Brundig came about with, you know, and they, you know, not only convinced me and our steering committee, but they convinced FDA and now it's becoming the way to do clinical trials. It's their work. Uh, one level below Dean, uh, Al Kraus, our senior director of quality, uh, phenomenal star. Uh, the case for quality efforts with FDA has been part of, actually, uh, CVRX has been part of nine quality pilot programs with FDA and foreign regulators, nine pilots over the past five years. Mm. There is not a single one that shows up a new thing where Al would not raise his hand and says, you know what, that's good for the company, let's do it, let's be part of it. Uh, and it's it's a, it's phenomenal work, he, you know, and he's been with the company now, I think 13 or 14 years, a phenomenal star. Uh, and I can go on and on and on. I'm just highlighting one example in here. We have, we do, we are lucky at CVRX. We do bat above our average. When you go to these meetings, whether it's Advermed, MDIC or others, you see CVRX often featured prominently. And it's not about me. It's about everybody in the team is doing it. Uh, one example right now uh, on the science of patient inputs. We are trying to understand how clinical trial designs in the future should assign their statistical p-value, right? So we all talk about p-value of 0 0.05 is statistically significant. Well, mm -hmm. yeah, but... Where did that, where did this 0.05 come from? It's one in 20. That means of 20 trials you run, one of them will be successful by chance, not because of the product is good. Hmm. Is that good enough? Not good enough? Well, it depends. It depends and we need to ask the patients and we have to establish a scientific method to get that input from the patients and quantify it. So we decided to do a project in heart failure, six cardiovascular companies, are part of this project, Medtronic, Abbott, Boston Scientific, Edward Life Sciences, Abiomed, and CVRX. The chair of this committee is Dean Brunding from CVRX. Uh, and FDA is part of it, Duke is part of it, DCRI is part of it, big project. It will change the way we look at p-values in the future for heart failure and could pave the way for other indications as well. Just one example, CVRX is not only there, we're also sometimes in the leadership role. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I don't know, I'm, maybe I'm lucky. I, I love being part of this team. Well, it makes a huge difference and, 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 you, and you've got them to keep the faith through you know, the ups and downs over the years. And maybe talk a little bit about that. I mean, the fact that these, these team, team members have really stayed in place uh, for a long time and in, endured um, you know the volatility that's present in really in really any startup, but uh, but uh, what what are some of the elements that you think? Um, I mean, I'm sure part of it is you know individual to each of the uh, people, but but what what sort of kept everybody going and kept the faith? How have you instilled instilled that? I think Jeff, the way uh, we hire people. The way we set expectations when we're hiring people makes a difference. Most of my team came from larger companies. You know, Liz Galley, Boston Scientific, Dean Runding, St. Jude, Craig Palmer, both Boston Scientific guided and St. Jude. I came from Medtronic and on and on, right? But we ask ourselves often the question before we join a company like CVRX, it is about who are we? What do we enjoy? What do we want to see? What do we want to accomplish in life? Uh, right now, for example, we are hiring our sales force in the United States. 
And I don't try to convince people to join CVRX. I will tell them the way things they are. And if they feel inside of them that they're ready, they'll know it. You know, simple things. I will ask them, what type of vacations do you like to spend? Do you prefer to go to an all-inclusive resort, be relaxed by the pool, sipping cocktail, watching sunsets? Mm-hmm. Or do you prefer to do rock climbing, whitewater rafting, and then in the evening camp? Both are valid. Both are good. I'm not criticizing one or the other. But depending on your answer to this question, it might tell you whether you're more made for the comfortable life in a larger company versus the exhilarating life in a startup. We do have highs, we have lows. We're not steady in a company. And because of how we select people at the beginning, they are wired to accept those very highs and very lows and keep us, you know, some form of steadiness, you know, and calmness, inner calmness inside of themselves. Well, that, I think that's a great way to sum up um, both the experience of working in a startup and also, you know, the excitement of, um, of bringing uh, uh, Barrow Neo to market. So, uh, Nadim, this has really been terrific. And one thing I love about this business is that you constantly learn. And, and I have to say, I've learned so much uh, from you, whether it's statistics or reimbursement or, you know, commercializing new therapy. It's been um you know, real pleasure over the years, and uh, and not just from you, your team, as we're talking about your team as well. Uh, um, so many experts there. So really appreciate you taking the time today. Very excited to see this technology get out to the larger patient population. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff, for featuring CVRX and Barastem on your podcast. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Nadim.